Let me read as we begin this morning a couple of verses from the second proverb. Proverbs 2, uh, beginning at verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the ways of his godly ones. Our Father, we're thankful that you are the one who preserves our ways. We pray that we might truly be godly ones, those who could be named after God because we love you and serve you and walk in obedience to your word. Father, we're grateful for your blessing on us. We thank you for this Easter season we've been through. We thank you for your blessing on the Mexico team and, and uh, the, the ability they had to be your channel of blessing down there in that land. And uh, Lord, we trust you now to be with us here this morning. Guide us as we uh, further study your word. And I pray, Father, that you will bless the proclamation of your word on this property in every venue, every class, in the services, and throughout the city of Reading and around the world, Father, this day. We trust that many will be drawn into the kingdom of God and others will commit themselves anew to the reality of the walk of faith. Thank you for your love in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are still in 2 Samuel. Actually, we just started the sixth chapter, so we'll be in 2 Samuel a little while. 2 Samuel chapter 6, reading the first 11 verses. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the cart. Meanwhile, David and all of the all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of firwood, with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And, it called, and th that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Last week, uh, two weeks ago actually now, we began looking at that particular passage and we already talked about some of the beginnings of this particular passage and the terms that are used and uh, how, what, what the whole celebration 
was like. David was simply grateful to the Lord for uniting all of Israel under his rule. And this has been, was something that he was looking forward to and, and wasn't certain would even come about for, for years, at least 10 years. And, and actually more than that, because he was king in, in Judah alone for seven years, so probably closer to 20 years. And he was so grateful that the Lord had finally brought this about that he decided that it was high time that the ark be taken out of storage, as it were, in Kirith-Jerim, and be restored to its focal point as the central aspect of the nation. Again, reminding you that Kirith-Jerim is located right here, about 10 miles west, slightly north of uh, Jerusalem. And that's where the ark had been from our study at least half a century, maybe as much as 70 years. The ark had been residing there in Kiriath-Jerim and not in a central place in Israel. So it, had, you know, it, was, it was out of the way. It wasn't even considered important, apparently, amongst the people of Israel. And so David here, with 30,000 of the leaders of Israel, that's quite a crew to be leading down the hillside and over to another town, they walked the 10 miles over to Kirith-Jerim. And in their enthusiasm, they took the ark out of the house that was on the hill, we're told twice, it was on the hill, on the hill, so you knew which house it was in Kirith-Jerim, and put it on a cart. After all, that's how it arrived at Kirith-Jerim, was on a cart, so why don't we just put it on a cart and take it away that same way. Two of the grandsons, probably a grandsons of Abinadab, were the ones who were kind of responsible for it. It said Ohio was out in front, sort of leading the oxen, and Uzzah was kind of riding shotgun, walking alongside. The, the passage is, is quite full of enthusiasm and excitement as you read about the celebrating that was going on. They were with musical instruments, with singing, with dancing. They were celebrating the return of the ark to the uh, central position in Israel. So you could just visualize these people with all of the excitement that was going on with great gusto, we could say. Not far west of Jerusalem, though, you remember as we read last time, uh, they came to a place called the threshing floor of Nacon. I talked a little bit about Nacon, but I, th I think pretty much Nacon, the, the word comes from the root meaning smiting. The threshing floor of the smiting seems to be the best uh, understanding of that particular uh, phrase. Uh, when it came to that place, for reasons that are not explained, the oxen stumbled, it says. The stumbling of the oxen apparently caused the ark to kind of totter, and, and there was concern that the ark might tip over. And so we find that Uzzah just puts up his hand to, to steady the ark, and he's zapped instantly, and he drops dead on the spot. Talk about... <laughs> a splash of cold water on the enthusiastic crowd. Those who witnessed it were just, you know, shocked to see what had happened. Verse 7 is very pointed about why it happened. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. The ark had been in the household of Uzzah all his life. He had grown up with the Ark of the Covenant in his house. 
You'll discover as you read through the passages that have to do with the ark being in, in, in the house of Abinadab, it never says, and God blessed the house of Abinadab, like it does about Obed-Edom. There was something about Abinadab's attitude and that of his family, apparently, and the fact that they didn't belong to the Levite tribe, that sort of put the ark on hold, like, like it was in storage there. And Uzzah and Ahio, of course, had grown up knowing the ark was there, and over-familiarity with the ark, and it seeming to be a very benign thing, I think had a lot to do with dissipating his fear of God. Obviously, he did not view the ark, nor did he view God himself with holy awe. And that's why God strikes him down for his irreverence. It was just as if a frigid hailstorm broke out of the whole crowd. The celebration was over. Suddenly, confusion and fear swept over the crowd that just moments before had been celebrating and praising the Lord. It's, it, it reminds me of, of Palm Sunday, which so soon is followed by crucify him, crucify him. The fickleness of the human race. And David is shaken to the core of his being. He thought he knew. He was assured he was doing what was right here. And then God struck. So what do we have here? I think we have here a case of unbridled enthusiasm producing unwise action. Uzzah certainly knew better or should have known better at least. But it seems that he felt that the exigency of the moment or the enthusiasm of the hour superseded knowledge. I think one of the most important things for us to remember, and something that it seems that gets kind of shunted away in various venues, and, and that is that God's Word is never altered by circumstances. God doesn't give His Word and then say, well, but in the case of this, this, and this, why then it doesn't count or it doesn't work this way. No. God's, work is, God's Word is eternal, applicable in all situations. His commands always apply. Abundant enthusiasm does not compensate for lack of wisdom. God could take care of his own ark. God could keep the ark from tumbling. In Romans chapter 10 verse 2, Paul, speaking of his people Israel, wrote, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Israel had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. God wants us to have a zeal for Him. He doesn't want to just go, us go around each day like a duh, you know, like flatline on the oscilloscope. He wants us to have some enthusiasm and, and some fire, emotion on His behalf. But He wants it based on knowledge of His Word and obedience to His Word. Be enthusiastic, be emotional, but according to the truth. Without accurate knowledge of His commands, God-pleasing obedience is impossible. How can we please God by our obedience if we don't know what His commands are? You know, if we aren't really in His Word and don't really understand what He's been saying to us down through the millennia. Unfortunately, I think this is one of the biggest problems that faces the church in America today. People who you know, do their hand-raising and dancing and singing loud and bouncing off the walls and kind of mantra-like singing sometimes that we 
here on occasion in great emotion. They appear to be worshiping God with great zeal. Many seem to believe that their public outpouring of emotion and enthusiasm in so-called worship will outweigh any little glitches in their lifestyle. Oh, the very fact that, they're, that they're, um, they lack stewardship in their resources, for example, that they're very selfish in their use of money, that they tithe not at all and maybe toss a $10 bill in the plate once in a while. God, God won't pay much attention to that because I'm enthusiastic in my worship. That living together without benefit of marriage, abuse of children or wife, dishonesty, pornography, a whole litany of things that could be listed. That, that God will overlook those because I am enthusiastic in my worship. I'm, I'm you know, praising the Lord that the ark is going to Jerusalem. But those things in their lives are gutting the church of its moral and spiritual strength. The church cannot draw men and women out of darkness into light if the church itself is full of the darkness of hypocrisy. It just can't happen. Jesus' words to the church at Laodicea. You've heard this, I, I know, on many occasions, but I'd like to read that passage again and, and just to, again, note how fitting it can be. In Revelation chapter 3, reading at verse 14, where the Lord, through John, writes to the church at Laodicea, my wife and I have been to the site of Laodicea, or as near to it as we could get anyway, and the whole city today is nothing but a grassy hill with a few columns and, and pillars standing here and there in the middle of the weeds. Five miles from Hierapolis, from whence came the lukewarm water from the hot springs there at what today is called Pamukkale. Jesus, through John, said to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the Hebrew there, I mean, the Greek there, as I understand it, is arche. I don't know if that's how you say it, but um, means the source. It means the origin of. Uh, so this is not a passage saying that Jesus was the first thing that God created. What it's saying is that he was the originator, the source himself of creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And to me, of course, that can be applied in many ages of time. I, I'm not a believer in the seven churches of the Revelation being seven epochs of time and each church representing that. I think all seven churches can apply to all periods of time. You go back to the Middle Ages and you look at the church that was predominant in Europe in the Middle Ages and, and much of it was decadent and cold and, and filled with wealthy clergy and poor parishioners. But I, I think it really is applicable to not all of the church, of course, but much of the church that exists in America today. 
where the Word of God is really being ignored. That is, at least the obedience to it is being ignored. Now, James makes it clear that we're not to be hearers only, but doers of the Word. doesn't do us any good to keep hearing it if we don't do it. And, you know, I, I think that all fits within the context here, because as you look at this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it seems that such ignoring of God's Word led to the disobedience that was at the core of the problem here in this passage. We have several things, three, I think three examples of disobedience in that passage which illustrate the lack of knowledge of God's Word or at least to obeying it. If we go to Exodus chapter 25, reading at verse 10, Exodus 25, reading at verse 10. And they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. And you shall make a gold molding around it. And you shall cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. So the first command that was being ignored was that this thing where the scripture says God's name was focused and placed was to be carried only by poles. Four men on the four corners were to carry the, the ark. It was not to be transported by any other means, cart or otherwise. And if they were carrying it by poles, there would have been no danger of it falling over uh, because the cart was not where it was supposed to be in the first place. And then secondly, we have another problem. And that is there's no evidence that Ohio Nusa had anything to do with the tribe of Levi. And the scripture makes it very clear, only the Levites were to grab those poles and carry the ark. No one else was authorized by Scripture to do that. If we look at Numbers chapter 4 and reading at verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they may not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry, meaning not only the ark, but you know, the, the golden table and, and incense altar and, and all of the rest of it, was all to be carried only by the sons of Kohath, which were one branch of the tribe of Levi. That was their job. They were to do it. And even they are instructed that they not touch the holy objects, lest they die. And thirdly, it seems that the very fact that the ark had been virtually ostracized from Hebrew society for at least half a century, this diminished Israel's sense of awe and reverence towards the God whose name was manifested in the ark. As we read in the uh, 2 Samuel 6 passage, uh, it, it, it says that God's name was manifest, focused in the ark. It represented his presence on earth because God had not yet incarnated himself in Jesus. 
And, and so this was sort of the physical manifestation of his presence. I think David finally understood this after this had happened. Because if we go to the parallel passage in um, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 11, Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of God. David loved the Lord, and David was a student of God's word. And th after this happened, it suddenly, suddenly David was awakened to the fact that God had made it very clear how the ark was to be transported, and it was his fault that he allowed it to be transported in a different way other than what God had ordained. However, before David came to his senses, he reacted very emotionally, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Actually, when you think about it, David's reaction to this seemingly at the moment inscrutable tragedy, how could God do this when we're doing what we think is right? His, his emotional reaction is very understandable. When we believe that God has done or allowed something to happen that we feel is irrational or is unjust, we often allow our relationship to God to be adversely affected. When we listen to Satan... He will put doubts into our mind as to whether God really loves us and really is fair. Just a little snippet from my own past. My great-grandmother, my step, no, I'm sorry, my step-grandmother was pregnant after she married my grandfather. Uh, he had, he'd already had two children by his first wife and she had never been married before. Anyway, she married him and uh, she became pregnant. And at birth, she lost the baby. And she blamed God even into her old age for having lost the baby. It was his fault that that child died on the birthing table. She just, just the way she was. She, she never had another child. You see, God had acted unfairly and unjustly as far as she was concerned in denying her that child. Similarly, there are many today who blame God for this seemingly needless tragedy of 9-11, believing that if God were truly loving, if God were truly just, He would not have allowed so many innocent people to have died in such a horrible manner. We're told that David became both angry at God and fearful of God. Wanted nothing more to do with the ark. If that's the way God is going to react when I'm trying to do the right thing, what I think is the right thing about his ark, then I don't want anything to do with his ark anymore. But what I think is really fascinating and, and encouraging about the passage is we don't find God reacting that way to David. God's reaction to David is one of patience, one of love. God has not changed one iota by David's getting angry at God or telling God, I don't want your ark around. God is immutable. God is unchanging. 
God's love for us is undiminished, especially because he understands our frame and knows that we are weak and we don't see very far down the road. We ourselves may sometimes become consumed with anger, fear, or doubt towards God, but his love is always there for us. I've mentioned this to you before, but years ago I, I read a book called Christ the Tiger in which the author basically encouraged the, the readers. He said, if you're angry, God, tell him. <laughs> Just vent your spleen on him. He can take it. <laughs> you know, he's got broad shoulders. His personality isn't going to, he's not going to feel threatened in his person because somebody's bending his spleen at him. God is patient with us, <laughs> thankfully. And he, and he knows that we have limited understanding of his purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I pray almost daily, Lord, grant wisdom and guidance for this day. And, and sometimes things come up which are a conundrum. We don't really know what to do or how to pray or how this should be worked out. But we move ahead in faith that God will show us the way and work it out as we go along. One thing about God that you've all discovered, I know as well as I, and that is that God doesn't show us much of the future at any one time. I, I think if he did, we, we'd end up being rather apathetic or, uh, you know, self-confident or something else. Scared to death. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. This, this could be true, too. <laughs> you remember when Moses uh, was up on Mount Sinai and, and God decided to reveal something of himself to Moses, the scripture says that the Lord appeared to Moses and said, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. One of the most important aspects of that is trying to learn a balance because we have the imbalance sometimes of those who want to emphasize God's love and ignore God's justice. And there are others who emphasize God's justice and ignore God's love. You know, go around jabbing their finger in people's faces and, you know, accusing them of this, that, and the other thing and trying to find a balance. This, this is what I think has been the greatest challenge for me is, is finding the balance. It's like trying to argue through... Um, predestination and free will. I mean, it just after a while becomes a huge waste of time to, to argue about because somewhere between the two or involving both of the two is the truth. Um, God is sovereign and yet we have a choice in the whole matter and somehow it all works together. They don't have to be antipodes. And so it is with so many things of life. If we overemphasize one aspect of God's character and ignore other aspects of God's character, we're in trouble. And that's unfortunately the way many churches go today. As you know, there are certain, quote, evangelical churches that are Jesus-only churches, and they ignore the Holy Spirit and God the Father, and they only talk about Jesus. They have a lot of truth, but they have a lot of error, too. And, and the only way to get rid of error is to know the Word of God, because this is the truth. There is no other source of truth. This is truth with a capital T. And I, I've also mentioned this before. The better we know the word, the sooner red flags fly when some strange doctrine comes along. You quickly notice, oh, this is, there's something really wrong here. Otherwise, it might sound good. A lot of times it sounds good. Well, yeah, that's reasonable. And, but, it, but it's wrong. 
took David a while to recover from the shock of Uzzah's sudden demise. But it powerfully reinforced the scriptural teachings concerning the holiness of God, and they needed it at that moment. The ark had been out of the way for half a century or more, and Israel had no focus for worship. And worship had fallen by the wayside. The tabernacle is not even mentioned. It was gone. And, and, and the people were just floating along doing their thing. And they'd had a king for 40 years who, who paid no attention to God. And so you can imagine that their understanding of God was greatly diminished. And so this was a powerful reinforcement. All of a sudden, here's a visual aid. You know, you want visual aids? Here's a visual aid. <laughs> Zap. You know, guy drops dead right in front of your eyes. That's a visual aid. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, you know, struck holy terror into people, realizing, you know, God is holy. Better consider him to be holy. Enthusiasm for God is very good. However, it must be tempered with reverence for his holiness. In David's day, the mediator had not yet been given. The high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, had not yet come. Therefore, the veil still existed between God and man. The veil between the holy and the holy of holies was there. Only the high priest could enter the holy of holies to sprinkle blood upon the ark, and he could only do that once a year. But you and I, Jonathan. I just had a question. Maybe I missed it because I came in late. But um, I was just thinking about this passage that it doesn't talk anywhere about when the enemy had the ark that they were being instructed putting it on the ark or whatever. This guy knew better. You know, I didn't. Can I touch on that? That's just part of the question. You know, since they had all the ordinances and, and the rules and they knew what God wanted from them. One of the um, interesting little um, sayings that has come down to us is that what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. <laughs> I think that most of the people of Israel had partially had amnesia, and those who remembered said, well, the reason the ark was so destructive on the Philistines was that they were Philistines. They are not the people of God. They're not the chosen ones of Israel. And therefore, God, of course, wouldn't do to us what he did to them, would he? Yeah. I think what they forgot, and I think is, is embedded in your question there, is that when the ark on the cart first arrived in Israel, and the men of Beth Shemesh came down and started peering in the ark to see what this thing was all about, and it says 50,000 of them died. You, you think that would make a big impression? You know, if something happened in the city, and 50,000 people of Reading died, well, you know, that would be, what, five-eighths of the population of the city. That, that would make a big impact uh, on us, but apparently, they had forgotten, or they didn't think it would apply. But when we think of our own lives, God teaches us a lesson, and sometimes he has to teach us the same lesson five years later, because we've already forgotten it, or at least aren't living according to what we had learned. Why pick the Philistines method of transporting that? Because it's handy. <laughs> I, yeah, right. That is a good point, Larry. Then why does the church sometimes pick the world's methods to uh, carry on some of their activities? I think that's uh, a good application there. Jesus did come to bridge the gulf between God and man. When Jesus died, you remember the, the, the Gospels tell us that the veil of the temple was split in two. 
torn from top to bottom. Symbolic of the fact that now the scripture tells us you can come boldly before the throne of grace. You and I who are truly born again Christians and our children of God can go ourselves before the throne of grace. We don't need priests from the tribe of Levi, an Aaronic priest to stand between us and God. We have the high priest, the, the better priest of Hebrews, uh, Jesus himself as our high priest. But that in no way diminishes the holiness of God. Just because we have been given the right to go boldly before the throne of grace shouldn't mean we just come waltzing right on in there and start demanding of God these things. He's still the holy God of Israel. And every time you see him described in any attempt to describe him, there's, there's fire and there's, there's smoke and, and there's brilliant blues and other colors. I don't think even our best computer-generated artists today can even begin to touch upon what it's really going to be like to see God Almighty on His throne. I, I think I've mentioned this before, and it always strikes me that in the one gospel, John, John gives a little more detail about what went on in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And you remember when they were coming to arrest Him, they said, you know, where, where is Jesus? And, and he responded, well, here am I. And they all fell down. It says they all fell backwards on the ground. I think what Jesus did was just a little teeny sliver of who he really was shine through just for a moment. Splat. It's interesting. The Greek there is I am. I am. It can be translated it is I, but they go in me. That's yeah. I am. <laughs> And yet there are those who try to tell us that Jesus was just a man, just a teacher, that he never made any claim for being deity. Unfortunately, because God's name is no longer focused in an ark which can be obviously seen and reverenced and honored, but now the Spirit of God dwells in our individual hearts. Many have become flippant and casual in their attitude towards God. I was listening to, Lois had bought this tape from a radio program where this converted Muslim was speaking. And he was a Muslim of Muslims, but Jesus Christ had converted him. And he looks at the church in America in a very different way. And he says, there is so much irreverence in the church in America. He says, you can even see it in the way people dress. They come flippantly into church, you know, with their little flip-flops and their shorts and their t-shirts and their belly buttons hanging out. And he didn't say all those words, but I'm reading that into. <laughs> I'm just reading, reading that into his words. He, he says, you wouldn't show up before the president of the United States like that. Why do you throw up, show up before the God? Throw up, yeah. <laughs> Why do you... Why do you show up before the Almighty God of the universe like that? It's because we think, well, God just takes us however we are, so it's a come-as-you-are party. Well, I think that's, there's something far deeper than that. It's far deeper than that. They don't see, of course, anybody zapped for their irreverence today. If you do something in the church that's irreverent, does, does a bowl of lightning come through the ceiling and fry you on the spot? No. <laughs> <laughs> It would clean up the church in a hurry, wouldn't it? Make for some new ceiling repairs as well. But there is a passage in Scripture in the New Testament which sometimes I think is, is, is overlooked, particularly in the celebration of the communion. And let me read that passage. I, I know you know it, 
because it has been read here in this church, but let me just read it again in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And Paul, of course, is, is describing out the, the communion passage here. And in verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are dead. We don't know how much trouble, ill health, sickness, and death might be rooted in an irreverent taking of the communion, an irreverence before God in his house, a flippant attitude towards whom he is and what he expects and what he accepts. I'm just really praying that, uh, that the new generation that's coming along will catch a vision of, of who God is and that will change the attitude of so many. Uh, many feel that to Oh, well, you know, just to be a Christian doesn't mean you need to be a Victorian. Go around, you know, covered to your neck and to your ankles and to the ends of your arms. No, it doesn't mean that. But there is a word called modesty, which seems to have been forgotten. And I think God wants us to be modest, not to be displaying things that cause other people to lust. And that's what's happening. And it's just ignored as if, it, oh, it can't really be. No, no, it's the way the world is. Well, maybe the way the world is, but I don't think that's the way we're supposed to be. And so I think it's all tied up in this, this whole event that we're talking about here. It's an attitude. It's, it's an attitude that enthusiasm covers everything else. It's an attitude that it's not necessarily important to adhere specifically to the Word of God because God is free and easy. I don't think so. I think God is a holy God. The Scripture says our God is a consuming fire. It's just a short little word, a passage, but we tend, we tend to forget that sometimes in the church in America today. Churches that don't forget it are the churches that are under persecution. I was just reading the Christianity Today yesterday about this fellow who lived in China, grew up in China. His father was in prison camp, and he was raised in a prison camp, and he was an atheist, and, and, and somehow he decided because he was going to be beat up and tortured in the lowest level of society for the rest of his life, he'd get out of China. He managed one day to escape to China and make it to the United States. In the United States, he came, became aware of the gospel of Christ, was converted, and now he's in the process of trying to document persecution of Christians in China. And he's getting an immense amount of uh, data on the persecution of tens of thousands of Christians in China today. And you can just imagine how here these people are under such horrible persecution, the kind of reverence they have for the holiness of God and the lack of flippancy in their lives because it's do or die. You know, you, you either live the truth or, you're, uh, or there's no point in being punished for something that's not the truth. You know, why pay with your life for something that's not true? And, and, and so they're going to live in accordance with the Word of God. And I think you drop those people in America today, they just stand aghast. Stand aghast looking at a typical service in America today with its flippancy and uh, arrogance and uh, immodesty and everything else that goes on. We need to pray that God will, will bring his holy fire on us again, hopefully not in a <laughs> destructive way, 
but in a way that will shape us uh, so that we truly serve him with reverence in his holiness.